Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! In this episode, we step into the global market for surrogate mothers with University of Texas sociologist Sharmila Rudrapa. She explains why India has become an increasingly popular destination for American couples searching for affordable pregnancy assistance. She also considers why most Indian women who become surrogates come from working class backgrounds and how their experiences as wage workers informs what kind of value gets placed on this new form of labor. Her new book is called Discounted Life, The Price of Global Surrogacy in India, and it's available from New York University Press. The Office Hours, uh, Sharmila is going to tell us about her new book, and I originally believe you were interested in infertility. Um, what made you so interested in surrogacy and its connection to infertility? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for doing this. Uh, it always, you know, I love talking about my work uh, because I find it interesting. Uh, maybe first I could explain a little bit of what we mean actually by surrogacy yeah. and to think through why this is a compelling topic because each time I talk about it, people are a bit puzzled. They're not quite sure what this really means. What we mean by surrogacy uh, as it's commonly practiced today around the world is uh, third-party infertility assistance. So say I, as a straight woman, and my husband are unable to have children, either because we, I have eggs that are not viable or I'm unable to carry a pregnancy to term, or my husband might have fertility issues, right? We can actually contract with um, egosperm banks to buy human, you know, cells, sex cells. We would utilize these sex cells to prepare an embryo uh, in vitro uh, in a petri dish. And we would find a third party who we would contract in uh, with to carry that embryo for us uh, to tell. That is what we mean by surrogacy. So the egg and the sperm legally belong to the couple or the individual who's entering into the surrogacy agreement. And the surrogate mother, on the other hand, has no genetic connection to the child that she bears, that she is then going to give up at the end of her term, uh, gestation period, for a previously agreed upon sum of money. So that is what we mean by surrogacy. Um, so what I study in the book then is thinking about how India emerges as the largest, uh, what shall I say, service provider of surrogacy. The U.S. still dominates the market because the U.S. earns the highest amount of money because of surrogacy. But in terms of sheer volume, India produces the most number of surrogated babies. Uh, right? So I was very interested in thinking through what leads to these processes in India. And so the book actually is basically divided into two sections. The first section looks at labor markets and surrogate mothers. Right? How do women sign up to becoming surrogate mothers um, is a fascinating question because people just don't jump into jobs because those jobs exist. Right? They need to be convinced this is good employment. What is going on in India that there's these large numbers of women who are willing to jump into this 
employment option, if you will. That is one part of the book. And the second part of the book, I really think through what does it mean to commodify a life process that has never been commodified before? And what I mean by that is women have never received wages, or at least these women that I'm interviewing have never received wages for pregnancy. And here they are, right, receiving wages and they give up the baby, right? So what are these subjective feelings people go through with receiving wages for something like pregnancy as it enters the market, right? Is it a gift or is it a commodity? Uh, a very age-old anthropological question uh, brought to a very new emerging market phenomenon. So that's what the book basically does. Great. And so can you tell us why India? What makes India such a unique place for surrogacy? Why is it so popular as opposed to other countries? Well, what is interesting with India is in 2002, the country commercializes surrogacy. What we mean by that is women can actually receive a lump sum of money uh, for getting pregnant and giving up babies for others, as I described. So India commercializes surrogacy in 2002. That's certainly not the only country to commercialize surrogacy. Uh, certainly in the U.S. you see that as well, right? Israel as well. You see, you know, uh, pretty strong commercialization of surrogacy. But what's going on in India is that you have a large enough um, group of doctors trained in English with very high skill sets developed on working on hundreds and hundreds of women's bodies, right? So you have really good doctors who are trained literally because they're working on so many women's bodies because of the population size, right? Who are very good at manipulating human bodies because they have the skill set, right? Skills is not just about education, but it's actually doing, right? And manipulating bodies and material. So these doctors are are really very high-skilled doctors because of the length of work they've been doing with women's bodies. English-speaking, that's the other advantage India has. But crucially, India also has a large enough working-class population of women who are willing to sign on as surrogate mothers. So you have these confluence of uh, factors coming together and uh, which then makes surrogacy, uh, India a popular destination for surrogacy. I actually forgot about one thing, um, the price. Uh, the price, uh, surrogacy in the U.S. can cost anywhere from $120,000 to $180,000. In India, it costs anywhere from forty-five dollars to $65,000 for a singleton baby. So the price as well is a pretty good bargain for people wanting to engage in surrogacy but may not have the financial options that upper-middle-class individuals might have. Uh, so it really opens up the market for those who had been written out of surrogacy previously because it's so expensive in the U.S. And can you talk some more about um, why working-class women as opposed to poor women who are surrogate mothers in India? Yeah. I know you mentioned this in the book. Yeah. Well, for me, I think what is interesting is most people think that, you know, women who are desperately poor are the ones who sign up to become surrogate mothers. But we've got to remember that even though desperately poor women may want to become surrogate mothers, they're not the ideal worker for the industry. For example, they may have uh, long years of malnutrition that actually shows in the body, right? They may have bad teeth. 
the hair skin tone may not be as ideal as someone who has better health um, indicators, right, because of malnutrition. So these kinds of workers, if you will, are not suitable for the surrogacy industry. For one, the doctors don't quite know whether she's going to be able to carry a successful, you know, pregnancy to term. But also clients, you know, intended parents wanting to engage in surrogacy may not want to work with a woman like that, right? Because they would worry about the outcome for the child they're going to receive. So even though very poor women may want to work as surrogate mothers, they're not the ideal candidates for the job. Ideal candidates tend to be, I would say, working class women who come from multiple income families, meaning their parents, their in-laws, their husbands, they themselves actually are engaged in in, uh, wage labor, which may be temporary, but on the other hand, there's different sources of money coming into the family. They generally tend to have some sort of secure housing, uh, running water in their homes, uh, good nutritional outcomes, right? Most of them tend to have one to three children because they're really interested in practicing also uh, family planning and they want small families because they want great outcomes for their children, right? And so these candidates are very ideal for uh, surrogacy agencies because they have the proper comportment that they would see that clients would want to work with. So there's a vested interest as well. It's not that anyone can go in and sign on to becoming a surrogate mother. But on the other hand, the women also should be motivated enough to carry out all of the stuff that she's been contracted to do, right? Including all of the medical checkups, the the injections, so on and so forth. Um, So that means it tends to be a woman who already has some experience in the labor force and is used to particular kinds of industrial discipline. Uh, So these are the kinds of candidates who are more ideal than, say, farm women or rural women who have a very different understanding of what labor and the labor contract is. And can you talk a little more about why having a multiple income family is such a benefit for creating a surrogate mother? Yes. Uh, For one, wages tend to be very low in India. So multiple income homes means there's more money for the family to utilize than not. There's that that's important. The other thing is if, uh, well, at least in Bangalore, but in many other parts of India as well that, uh, you know, surrogate mothers or the surrogacy industry is thriving, surrogate mothers tend to be kept in dormitories for the duration of their pregnancies. So if and when they are in the dormitory, they're unable to take care of their often very young children who are left behind at home. So if you do have extended family networks of supportive parents, grandparents, right, uncles, aunts, but also husbands, um, then it's easier for the woman to stay in the dormitory. So multiple income families also tend to be... um, labor pooling families, mm-hmm. right? So so there's childcare that is much more easily available and childcare that the child knows these people, right? Uh, has intimate social relationships with over the course of their childhood and growing up. So I think this would be the ideal case scenario for most surrogacy agencies is to hire women from multiple income families 
One, because of the more mo- more money, but also because there's more labor uh, that's going into taking care of the children when the women are in the dormitories. Thank you for that clarification. So I do want to talk methods mm-hmm. for a minute since I am myself training to become an ethnographer. Mm-hmm. Um, besides access to the population, mm-hmm. what are some of the challenges of for this study about collecting and analyzing data? Actually, accessing the population was the hardest challenge that I faced. The reason I say that is this, right? Um, most surrogacy agencies do not want you to interview the surrogate mothers. If they do allow you to interview surrogate mothers that they recruit, there's always someone that is loitering around that has a kind of surveillance system set up. So the surrogate mothers are very guarded or very, uh, what shall I say, schooled in the kinds of things that they say to you as a researcher. So basically then you really don't have any interesting narratives other than what the surrogacy agency wants you to hear, right? So that was one problem. The other problem is many of the infertility doctors that initially spoke with claim that researchers don't respect um, the privacy of surrogate mothers and that we were very intrusive and that we did not respect personal boundaries of clients and uh, surrogate mothers. So they really wouldn't want suspect characters like me running around their businesses. So access became actually incredibly difficult. I started this project in 2008, but I was able to meet surrogate mothers only in 2011. Oh, wow. So it was a long trudge, right? And the reason I met surrogate mothers is because my father is a doctor in Bangalore. He's a ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Nothing to do with surrogacy. But one of his patients that he was treating for a very severe throat infection happened to strangely be a recruiter for surrogate mothers. And so over the course of his conversation with her, he learned that she was a recruiter. And so he contacted me immediately saying, you won't believe it, but I met someone who actually recruits surrogate mothers. Would you want to talk with her? So I flew down over spring break in 2011 just to meet with this woman and gain access to the um, surrogacy agency. I hung out with the women for a couple of weeks and I was kicked out of the surrogacy agency because the agency owner said I'd learned enough, right? And that I had enough to do my study. But I was very fortunate in that I was able to get the cell phone numbers of some of the surrogate mothers. And through some of the women whose cell phone numbers I had, I eventually ended up meeting 70 women. So there was a lot of chance and luck and networking Mm -hmm. that made this project possible. And I don't think it would have been possible if I didn't come from Bangalore originally, Um, not just because of the networks, but also understanding the city in particular ways, but also knowing language, right? Uh, Because all of the interviews were done in Kannada, Mm -hmm. which is the language I speak and what the, the language the surrogate mothers spoke as well. And so did you ever think, I have to have a plan B? What am I going to do since it's been two years? I still haven't talked to surrogate mothers. Actually, yes. This was the interesting thing, you know. Um, I started this in 2008. I was in Bangalore the summer of 2008 and summer of 2009. And I'd started participant observation in an infertility clinic. Because one of the doctors I'd met, who was just a phenomenal person, she passed away recently, um, 
because of old age. Uh, just lovely, lovely person. She told me that I would not be able to understand surrogacy. If I did not understand infertility because surrogacy is really the final step someone takes in infertility assistance. So without understanding what a person was going through, through the treatment of infertility, if I didn't get that, then surrogacy wouldn't make sense. So I'd actually done two summers of uh, participant observation in her clinic, and I was supposed to go back 2010 when I found that I was accidentally pregnant <laughs> with my second child, and there was no way I could travel to India that summer, right? So there's all of these accidental things that happen. And so what I instead started doing was I started doing interviews with intended parents who'd used surrogate mothers in India, not in Bangalore, but in different cities. So I'd gotten quite a few interviews done, and I was thinking that is the direction my study would go. Really, I've done this stuff on infertility, then thinking through infertility and thinking through what the clients are doing when they go to India. Uh, when in 2011, I received that call just before spring break. So that's sort of the long trajectory of not quite knowing what I was going to do, wondering whether this project would even see the light of day. So it's, it's been a long journey. It's quite a journey, for <laughs> sure. So how do you see this work having impact on women's global health? I think surrogacy really points to so many contradictory aspects and different kinds of populations that we're talking about. One is infertility, right? Um, infertility really is a global issue. Uh, and uh, very often we don't think about the right to have children as a human right. But certainly that has been the growing discourse in human rights circles and also among infertility uh, people going through infertility assistance. So surrogacy then actually opens up the ability for individuals to complete their families. You could always say there's adoption, but adoption markets are very, very different from surrogacy markets because with adoption, you're going to be worrying about the rights of a child, whereas surrogacy is about reproductive rights of the individual, mm -hmm. right? So it really changes the question quite a bit, right? There's that. But on the other hand, when you start studying surrogacy, you also start thinking through the vast disparities that exist in women's health and access to women's uh, health facilities, not just between the so-called first world and the so-called third world, but within India itself, right? Uh, many of the surrogate mothers that I'd worked with in Bangalore, um, the only form of birth control they knew was tubal ligation that is sterilization, right? And so here are all these sterilized women now engaging in surrogacy, right? So it started pulling me into questions about population control. The reason they do it, they're sterilized is because of population control policies, which push sterilization, right? So there's ways by which when you start thinking that you're actually just studying surrogacy, you realize you're being pulled into so many different directions and you learn so much about access, about what is considered, you know, infertility. For example, the women who become surrogate mothers who actually have the tubal ligation, tubes tied, the fallopian tubes tied, I'll bet you if they wanted to engage in surrogacy themselves as clients, they wouldn't be able to do it, right? So it's a question of access, right? But they are infertile for all practical purposes, but medically so, right? 
So it really raises the questions of uh, global health inequalities in very fundamental ways doing this study. Do you think it has any implications for men and men's global health as well? Um, you know, what is interesting is very often when we think about surrogacy, we think about it as sort of a woman's problem, uh, right? But really, a vast number of infertility, infertility cases have to do with male infertility. Uh, that really is the larging, largest contributing factor, larger contributing factor at some level, right? Um, so I think there's ways by which when you start thinking about infertility, and surrogacy is just one aspect of that, you certainly start thinking about male infertility as well, and what might have contributed to male infertility, which indicates certain kinds of health factors for men. Great. So what's next for you in terms of projects? Are you going to continue researching surrogacy or infertility, or is it onto something else? I think I feel like I've opened a can of worms with this particular project. And it's almost as if I need a cohort of researchers to be doing this work with me because there are so many projects to work on, um, right? One of the things that I want to study, for example, is uh, surrogacy, for example, well, one of the first project, um, surrogacy for gay couples is banned in India as of 2012. Now, in order to meet the needs of the gay clientele from the U.S., from Israel, but other parts of the world as well, Indian businesses start doing really interesting things. They start getting Indian surrogate mothers for the clients, uh, implant embryos that belong to gay couples, and send them to Nepal to deliver babies, where the gay men then can come pick up the babies. Nepal bans surrogacy recently, earlier this year. Um, now various Indian doctors are thinking about various African countries. So they're going to bring surrogate mothers from these countries, have them impregnated with embryos belonging to gay couples, and then sending them back to their countries where their babies can, become, can be picked up. Sri Lanka, perhaps, is an emerging market, right? Uh, I've also heard about Bangladesh, I mean, sorry, Bahamas, as being potentially a space as well that people are exploring. So it's almost as if there is a global production chain, right, commodity chain in how this is growing. And it's all utilizing different legal regimes. By the way, all of this would be legal. It's within the bounds of the law. None of this is illegal, right? So you figure out what kinds of laws exist and where you're going to shift your business and what aspects of your business you can shift. I think that's a fascinating project to work on. Um, the second project that I'm certainly very interested in is thinking about what gets considered the byproducts of infertility industries. This certainly is in the, the case in the US, but also in the UK and India as well. Wherever there's infertility assistance, you have um, spare embryos because, you know, parents donate embryos once they've fulfilled meeting their family size, right? So there's spare embryos. There's also fetal tissue because at least in India, each surrogate mother is implanted with three to four embryos per attempt at surrogacy. So, and then you medically reduce the number of fetuses, which is basically abortion. So there's fetal tissue available. And there's also cord blood cells. 
Right. Now, the interesting thing with the fetal tissue and cord blood cells is clients and the surrogate mothers don't have proprietary rights over fetal tissue and cord blood cells. So these then so-called byproducts are released into research streams. So I think the next thing I really want to study is thinking about, you know, stem cell research uh, or regenerative medicine, uh, which might be a much more effective way to think about this um, and its interdependence on women's bodies through these infertility assistance. So it's not just about making bodies, but really about remaking life itself through women's bodies. So fascinating. Something I'd never considered before. Oh. It's, it's kind of grotesque. I think about it as vampire capitalism. Even though I think, you know, you need this kind of research. I would not be, I'm not against stem cell research. But on the other hand, it's also strangely fascinating. I think about, you know, these research processes as eating into human bodies, feeding off of human bodies. But having said that, I still think we need to do this kind of research, right? Yes. <laughs> well, thank you for stopping by Office Hours. Oh, Really enjoyed talking to you. This has been really wonderful to hear about surrogacy in India and infertility and broader connections to women's health and global human rights. So thank you very much. Thank you. This was a pleasure. This episode of Office Hours featured Dr. Sharmila Rudrapa speaking about her new book, Discounted Life, The Price of Global Surrogacy in India, from New York University Press. The episode was hosted by a new guest from the Society Pages editorial staff, Sarah Catherine Billups. It was produced by Matt Gunther at the Sociology Department at the University of Minnesota. You can find more podcasts and all kinds of great new written content on our website, thesocietypages.org.